Hey there, I'm Ant Morehouse, and welcome to the Antitoxin Podcast. The Antitoxin is designed for the professional who has ticked all the social norm boxes but feels like something is missing. The entrepreneur at risk of losing perspective, and the dreamer who wants to turn their epic idea into reality. Join me and my awesomely authentic and vulnerable guests as we explore how to avoid living lives of quiet desperation and instead aim to achieve what I call the triple crown of having a fulfilling professional life while doing some good in this world while having a hell of a lot of fun along the way. Hey everyone, this episode is really full on and it's an episode where I'm not really doing a lot. Mick Stone just gives a narrative of a life's journey with East Timor, a fledgling new country torn apart by conflict as the backdrop. It's a story about presidential assassination attempts and geopolitics, getting involved in a very small country. And from Mick's personal point of view, enormous stress and mental health and post-traumatic stress and coming back from that and healing and putting all of his focus into helping the East Timorese communities and also veterans. I don't really earn my money in this episode. It's basically Mick just taking us on a journey as a monologue. He's almost transcribing a memoir, a book, a movie. It's incredible. It's a longer episode, but hopefully you'll get a lot out of this emotional journey that Mick takes us on. So my guest today is Mick Stone and Mick and I go way, way back to, you know, we joined the military together and went through officer training together. We went to the same infantry battalion together and we deployed at the same time into East Timor straight after the conflict the UN had pulled out in at the end of 1999 and there was a lot of sort of, you know, a lot of contention after an enormous amount of violence in, in the country. And I kind of came back and went back over and came back and then sort of did other stuff. And Mick kept going and kept dedicating himself to the country. So welcome to the show, Mick. How are you, mate? Thanks, Tyrone, mate. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, mate. I'm going great. Good. And you're in East Timor right now. Where are you? I'm standing one of the most picturesque places in the world. So I'm in a town called Malbisi and I'm looking around a 360 degree mega amphitheater. It's probably about 20, 30 kilometers wide and it's a huge valley in right in the middle of the spine of Timor, surrounded by mountains all the way around it. So it just looks like a, a huge, huge stadium of, uh, of beautiful nature. And uh, I'm standing on top of a complex. There's a, a knoll right in the middle of, of this huge valley that has uh, a beautiful white and red, pinkish red uh, painted building uh, within a fortress. It's an old Portuguese administrative post. It, it looks more like a defensive fort and it's very well known to people who travel in Timor and it's very historic. And it's quite a, it's a place that's got a fair few memories for me as well. I, I was actually here at uh, the last attempt at peace that my boss at the time, Jose Ramos Horta, 
had agreed to with the with the rebel Alfredo Renato in 2008 in very different circumstances to now. So anyway, I won't go into that story, but mate, it's, uh, it's great to be here and uh, yeah, it's great to be uh, talking to you from this location. You paint a vivid picture there, Mick. So I guess before we really kick off, because this is an interview really around your personal journey through, and East Timor's the backdrop, the landscape, but also kind of, I think, the lead role in in your story as well. But it's a story of, you know, mm. post-traumatic stress and redemption and, and all of that sort of stuff. But before we mm-hmm. get into that, particularly for people who may not even know that East Timor is a country, let alone where it is, let alone its sort of history with Indonesia and its history with Portugal and its kind of its position in the, in the world right now, maybe just in a few minutes, like paint us a picture. What is East Timor? East Timor is a small country directly northwest of Australia. It's one of Australia's closest neighbours and it's the eastern side of the island of Timor, which is featured throughout history. Captain Bly was and his uh, shipwreck came here. It was, was one of the stops on the first circumnavigation of the world by Magellan and his crew. And uh, uh, the Portuguese, uh, well, the Chinese have been trading here for about a thousand years. The Portuguese first came here for trading about 500 years ago. And for the last 70 years or so, it's been the site of uh, extreme conflict in World War II and then with the invasion of Indonesia in 1975 and the conflict that followed their withdrawal as well. Uh, so it, probably the best reference for people around the world would be Bali. Uh, most people know of Bali or seen a movie about Bali or travelled to Bali. It's a few islands across from Bali. It's about an hour Beautiful trip uh, over a bunch of islands, but it's about an hour to the east of Bali. If you go another hour, a little bit further to the east and a bit to the south, you hit Darwin, which is the northernmost city in Australia. It's uh, had a very unique story in the region, given that it remained a colony after World War II when most of the archipelago became Indonesia. A lot of other uh, countries uh, throughout the region uh, post-colonial times, they either became independent or had revolutions or conflicts. In the case of Timor, when Portugal threw down, uh, they had a popular unrising in 1974 called the Carnation Revolution. When that happened, uh, part of the agreement was that uh, they would be decolonizing. And uh, this was the first time really, and just a few years before with the first attempt to to provide education to Timorese people. And uh, they formed political parties and uh, uh, there was a, a lot of external uh, rustling and that ended up having resulting in a, a brief civil war in the country here and then that followed by uh, the invasion of Indonesian forces, which was a massive military invasion, a very brutal conventional war, which lasted a number of years and uh, many people died, at least a couple hundred thousand people uh, were killed in that. Then uh, the process uh, for independence that lasted for 24 years. Uh, there was a resistance war here in Timor fought by uh, Valentil and uh, one of the greatest success stories of, of a resistance force uh, fighting uh, basically the world, really, the opinion of the world. Nobody was uh, interested in helping Timor and uh, the support certainly from the West was uh, for Indonesia to stay here and the resources to be divvied up and so forth. Uh, but even u- unique to other other conflicts in the world, nobody was giving these guys guns. Nobody was uh, supporting them. Money. There wasn't a post World War II Cold War 
proxy conflict. Uh, they were really isolated, uh, but they became united and they uh, formed a, a very unique resistance uh, that applied discipline and, uh, and honour and unity and peaceful protest as well as they uh, kept a, a life, uh, a resistance uh, struggle. It was unique. They used a lot of discipline in not attacking soft targets or civilians or and never excessive force, and uh, they gained the trust, I suppose, of the world opinion. And uh, after the massacre that occurred in on the 12th of November 1991, which is well known as the Dili Massacre, where at least 250 children and unarmed uh, young people were massacred, were slain by Indonesian military and police. And that footage was the first footage of... Uh, of mass violation of uh, human rights and uh, and war crimes. Uh, that was really a turning point where the lobbying power started to move in their favour and uh, people started to distance uh, themselves from uh, what was happening here. And uh, just a lot of things happened. Uh, the, the Suharto fell in 1998. That was because of the Asian financial, in many ways, the Asian financial crisis in 1997. And then in 19, after Suharto fell, uh, the president that followed him in Indonesia agreed to Timor having a, a vote for independence. And the result of that in 1999, where Indonesia was given the authority to provide protection and, uh, and security uh, for that operation, though there was a big community of international observers and UN uh, officials here, the country uh, was basically completely destroyed, as you mentioned earlier. There was uh, one of the purest and greatest examples of scorched earth in modern history. And uh, it certainly seemed... Uh, that uh, great efforts were made to leave nothing left in this country. So that's uh, not even in a nutshell, but uh, I mean, the story is quite, is quite massive. And, uh, and then uh, Australia played a key part in the peacekeeping efforts from 99 onwards. And uh, with my role in that, uh, I've been uh, falling, I suppose, uh, more and more into different levels of uh, engagement here. And uh, I've kind of come full circle from not knowing much about uh, this country and not knowing much about myself to being very engaged in a very troublesome time, a very complex period. Um, I've been broken down in many ways um, because of the result of, uh, of all the different the work and the different experiences. And now I'm back uh, doing something where I've uh, collected myself and I'm starting to see the country move forward. So It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. And so... For many of us, East Timor was a fairly, it was a military operation. Like we went in, you know, we did our job and we got out and, and that was kind of it in a nutshell. But for you, I mean, that, that normal quote unquote military stuff was nothing in comparison to where it led you. So run us through mm. that journey quickly. I mean, how did, how did you end up basically being the, you know, the, the right-hand man to the president for a stage and, and deeply mm. involved in, in the conflict from the inside? And what did that yeah. do to you personally? Well, I have thought about this a fair bit, actually, and uh, the whole idea of fate and luck and uh, whether it's the uh, right timing and whatnot, and uh, there's probably a bit of that. But it really goes back to um, a period of uh, when I was in a job. Uh, I tried to join commandos like yourself, tore my hamstring and got a double hernia. So uh, basically was was uh, off that path for a while. I, moved to Brisbane and uh, when I was speaking to my career advisor in the army, 
he gave me the same, this is your pathway and you should be motivated for this job in three postings time. So you have to do this and suck eggs here and do that to get to this. And then you'll obviously want to do that job. So you'll have to do this and that and, and your path is fixed. And, and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, well, uh, this is kind of what I want to do. And they and um, anyway, before I got out of the interview, I, I was quite, this is our first job as a captain. So I didn't uh, know the game that well back then, but as I was standing up, I thought I'd just add in that uh, I thought there was still something going on in Timor. I was quite ignorant. I didn't really know what was happening. I said, look, if there's anything going on in Timor, just let me know. I put a bit of effort into learning the language uh, before the last deployment. I felt like I connected quite well and I think I'd be a good asset for you if you've got something going on there, not knowing what was happening, not knowing that we had advisors with the Timorese uh, military, uh, which was basically the core of the Timorese guerrilla force were transferred into the new nation's army. And uh, Australia was playing a key part in, in helping with professional training for that. And there was actually also deployed troops still in Timor uh, doing peacekeeping in the border region. I didn't know any of that. I just thought this is something that I liked. This is uh, something I think I'd be good at. Uh, and as it turned out, a few weeks later, I was at a career course at Canungra and uh, somebody quite unusually, the day before actually, the, there was an announcement on TV saying that we were going to send advisors to Iraq and somebody handed me a message in, in the middle of an auditorium, which is pretty weird on a career course, and it said, call the career advisor, the Army career advisor ASAP and with his name and number. And I thought, oh my goodness, they've, they've picked me to go to Iraq, how exciting. That's what I thought at the time. So I went out and made the call and they said, well, you know, you wouldn't believe it, but there's a, a job popped up in Timor and it's next week. And you told me you'd spoken to them because it, it needs to be somebody that has the language. So we'd have to put you through a language test. Would you be able to do it? And I got that sinking feeling like, oh, wow, like that's way too big a challenge. I'm totally not ready for that. I don't even know what it is. But I said, yes, yes, I'll, I'll take it. Absolutely. Yep. No worries. Set me up and do everything. So I frantically scurried around and learned as much as I could about what was happening in Timor. And I got a whole bunch of resources for the language testing. You know, I'm probably going to dob on myself here, but I, I actually set up a conversation that I would lead and I wrote it down to the person at the School of Languages in Melbourne so that they would be convinced that I speak the language. But I got most of it from a book. And I was hedging my bets here that if I pulled it off, that I would just absolutely hammer and nail, learn the language or learn as much as I could between the time they said yes or even the time the phone call had finished and the time I got on the ground. And uh, so I did lead into the conversation. And uh, one thing with the languages which I had picked up on is if you speak in a language fluently with a bit of an accent, a few phrases, and you can lead into a conversation that goes a little bit more than pleasantries, People, uh, local people or native speakers will think, wow, this person actually does speak language. If you go a little bit further and off the track and say a few things, they'll think, well, for sure, this guy speaks the language. As soon as they go off track and ask something different, you know, you can be stumped. But basically, it worked. They gave me an A+. Plus. They called the career advisor, said, yep, this guy's passed. He can do this job. They called me up. And I thought, all right, well, I've got a lot to get ready. I had no idea what the job was. And uh, anyway, so that led me to a path of... Uh, taking a job in Timor, which as a second year captain, I was made up to temporary major. 
and uh, I was working in the far post, far outpost uh, in the east of Timor. So the furthest away from the border was the 1st Timorese Infantry Battalion. And the guy I was working for was a guy called Falo Ratalaik, and he was one of the four regional commanders of the whole resistance. And his story is simply amazing. Like just He had an incredible life of, uh, of service and uh, and one of the top leaders. Anyway, so I was going there to be his advisor. Nobody there spoke English. I was in uh, in this old burnt-out Indonesian army base in the far east of the country trying to teach these guys how to be soldiers. You know, it sounds a bit silly because in many ways it is. So uh, I uh, basically did an analysis as we're taught to a rational mission appreciation for what my mission was and how I could do it. And learning the language was a really key part of that. So I dedicated a lot of time to that. Establishing trust was a key part of that. So I, I spent as much time with the people as I could and uh, establishing networks. In some ways, that was about force protection and staying safe. Uh, the more people that I was friends with and trusted me or respected me uh, would look after me and it'd become your early warning and whatnot, but also to do the job. That seemed to be the right approach. And then on the third thing, to shape and to train and to pass on any knowledge. And there's certainly a whole bunch of things that we take for granted that a post-conflict society doesn't have. Uh, you know, I wanted to be able to do that as well and generally help uh, with the development. So that lasted about a year and a half. And I was supposed to come home. And uh, once again, the career management in the army had uh, a dilemma because the person that was supposed to be coming to replace me didn't come. And they asked me if I could extend, which I'd been told that there would be a snowflakes chance in hell of uh, actually happening. Surprisingly enough, they called me and said, uh, well, uh, uh, would you stay for another year? And absolutely, that's what I wanted to do. So I stayed for another year. And during that year, uh, Timor went into what was known here technically as a civil and political crisis, but what you probably more identify as a civil war. It didn't completely engulf the whole country, but it did paralyze the country and it took the country back for a few years. Uh, so I became the linked man with the Timorese military when uh, they were getting attacked all around the city. Uh, basically, the half of the military had defected in earlier on and then uh, the police force uh, disintegrated. There were a whole bunch of armed people popping up around the place, uh, attacking the military that remained and the country quickly landslided into a state of anarchy. Australia led a multinational force that came in with Malaysia, New Zealand uh, and Portugal and basically there was a, a complete new, the city, the country more or less went into martial law and there was a complete new uh, crisis uh, that we were engaged with and I was very engaged with uh, many different uh, facets of that. Um, primarily, really, day to day, I was uh, closing in with any crime and trying to use my language skills and connections and understanding of the nuances of society and the, the people uh, throughout society to help all of the different professionals and experts that, that, that had come, you know, with Australia, all the different branches of the military. We had many branches of uh, the Australian Federal Police here. Uh, to do the wide range of things that had to be done. So, and uh, I worked really hard to try and help shape violence uh, escalating or, or violence, uh, you know, reoccurring or occurring the next day and whatnot. I did a lot of uh, negotiations, a lot of um, public speaking and speeches. I did a lot of work with the Timorese military, the former guerrilla fighters in society to stop other people getting uh, involved in the crisis and uh, also uh, 
to destroy or kill, stop rumours and in uh, massively traumatised society. They're, you've got a whole country of people who are doing the traumatic response of fight, flight or freeze. And, uh, yeah, so I was very involved in that and uh, throughout that process, the Prime Minister at the time, his name Jose Ramos Horta, he used to call the general, the Australian general here, who would call me. Eventually he realised that I was doing a lot of the things that he wanted to get done and they would connect me or he'd call me direct and I'd be doing missions or trying to help intervene on things for the Prime Minister. And uh, later on, as I was leaving in 2007, so I'd been there for about two and a half years at that point, the Prime Minister at the time, Jose Ramos Horta, said he'd be running for president. He said if he wanted, if he was going to be president, that he wanted me to come on his staff, which seemed like an incredibly flattering proposition but very unrealistic but, uh, of course, like how amazing to go and work for a president. And I was still a very young major in the army. So I went back to Australia and uh, that was a very, very difficult transition. Like I was very, very addicted to adrenaline. I was very addicted to being active and being in action and being close. People who have been in similar circumstances, like, like uh, who I identify with or seen movies, uh, where your natural instinct is actually to who desperately wanted to get back into it and going back to a slow life and a different, very different environment. Uh, it's difficult in, in many ways. Uh, but uh, I suppose one of the big ways is that um, you have to confront all of the issues and darkness and complexities and questions that you've either functionally, because it's a professional thing to do, you've locked away or shut down. And then just um, out of self-preservation, there's uh, also a whole bunch of things there. And uh, maybe you just haven't had time to process. And uh, for me, the thing that uh, was processed this through the years, and that wasn't the last phase of my life where I've been dealing with a conflict and crisis and that type of horror, but um, they're dealing with the, this, the death of uh, civilians and innocent people, children and elderly, is something that I don't think anyone can really process. You can't justify that. You can't make sense of that. When you know, when you can string causes to that and you can see that policy or decisions or people's actions have led to that or inactions or incompetence has led to that. Anyway, so I came back to Australia. I, had to be, I was amongst families, so it felt like it should be a safe place. But, yeah, I had to get back. And I was watching the news every day and just uh, – keeping an eye on it. I was running all over the place. Um, didn't really know what I was going to do in the army. I, I went off and did a career course in, overseas in, in Singapore. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the, a letter came through, a phone call came through and uh, the, I saw that uh, Jose Ramos Horta won the team selection and became the second president of the country. And then I got a phone call from, uh, from Defence saying, this has come through. We've got basically in the first letter that he wrote to our Prime Minister of the day, John Howard, the second part of the letter was asking if he could uh, appoint me as a seconded staff to his cabinet and uh, for at least two years. So I suppose John Howard went to defence and said, can this happen? And they went down the chain. It came to me. Before long, I was sitting down with the Chief of Defence Force and the Secretary of Defence, just the three of us, which is pretty damn weird for someone who's uh, <laughs> I was temporary major, but I was still how old are you, Captain? Yeah, how old are uh, you? Like give, give, paint 20, a picture. Twenty six or twenty seven, something yeah. like that. Right. Yeah, 
I can't, I just can't explain what happened in 06, but it was like a full intense year of being in the middle of a whole bunch of uh, horrible things. But I was very involved and I was very known in Timor. Like I was on TV every other day giving speeches in their language about the crimes. I was personally pointing down the camera at times and challenging bad guys. I was saying things that I knew that politicians would uh, take offence to or generally disagree. People were saying things that were resulting in people getting killed. But anyway, it was yeah, it was a lot of pressure for, for a young fella. And um, I suppose... Um, when I came back, I <laughs> what do you what do you do after that? Went down to Canberra and met with the um, the two chiefs and had a chat with them, and uh, they asked me for my advice on what what we could do. And I eventually went over and took over that job. And uh, yeah, here I was now working for a former Nobel Peace Prize winner. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1996 together with Bishop uh, Bellow for his role in building and forging peace uh, and in the fight for independence. For, for East Timor. And he's the president of a country, head of state, and commander-in-chief of their defence force. And so I'd gone from working for the Timorese army to the, the head of state. So that happened really fast. And it, but it did make sense. Like, it didn't seem like a massive jolt. But then working for him, I was just, just uh, like fully immersed every day, starting dark in the morning. Quite often I'd go for morning walks with him and the meetings would go all day and finished with long dinners in the night. His story is just incredible, but he basically been the, the spokesperson and, and uh, the connector with the world uh, for East Timor since the 70s. He, he went into exile in 1975, and he was the guy that at 26 years old addressed the Security Council in the United Nations, and just his whole life was committed to the country. And, and uh, there I was uh, working with him, and it was... Very, very intense, but satisfying. I was enjoying it. And about four months in the backdrop, there was a, a swathe of issues that this country was going through. It had 40% of people still below the poverty line, lots of people still starving, lots of people still dying of things that can easily be prevented. A big chunk of the country was still destroyed from the disaster in 99. A huge chunk of the country had been destroyed from the 2006 crisis. There was over 200,000 people. It was, I think, like 280,000 people displaced from the 2006 crisis. About 200,000 were in refugee camps all throughout the capital and around the capital in shanty towns. So, you know, that's a humanitarian crisis in itself. And there was the group of rebels that had played a key part in kicking off this crisis in 2006 were still running around the mountains. And ironically, I'm standing right in the middle of one of the main places that they used, the Mabisi Fort. They were still up in the hills. And uh, there was a process of uh, conciliation and, and dialogue. And Ramos Horta was the guy that was leading the push to try and resolve this issue through diplomacy, through consultation, through peaceful means, without bloodshed. And I could see that in him every day. And that was absolutely like his fight to help the poor people and help the oppressed and to resolve things without bloodshed was at the forefront of his mind and why he was working so hard. So basically it was seven days a week, no rests, full work. And four months into it, I woke up one, I was woken up one morning by a phone call at seven in the morning on a Monday, which even for me was pretty unusual. It was a guy screaming down the phone saying, Michael, Michael, the president's been shot. The president's been shot. Uh, what do we do? What do we do? You need to call a helicopter. And basically that was uh, the wake up call. Wow. Uh, 
yeah, like, man, heavy. Yeah, what do you even think? Yeah, so from getting that phone call to being a couple of kilometres away, scrambling to get conditions ready for a wounded president and a guy that I was closer with than an employer. The Timorese people are very affectionate and they welcome you in. And when you establish trust with somebody, you feel a lot closer than it's a similar relationship actually to the military. We feel a sense of brotherhood in this case, whilst we had a professional relationship, this guy seemed, he felt like family. Like I really cared for him. I loved him as a person. I was inspired by what he'd done and what he was doing. Essentially, a couple of minutes later, I was scrambling around in the hospital. He turned up at the heliport. It used to be the old airport, and it was a place that the Australian military and the New Zealand military there as well had established the medical centre, the combat medical centre for the troops that had deployed from the 2006 crisis. So they had a capability there to deal with combat casualties and multiple combat casualties. When I got this phone call, a whole bunch of things, which two years earlier wouldn't have happened, but a lot of conditioning. There were times when I was the freeze person, came across situations and didn't know what to do. But through many, many situations, the drills kind of kicked in. And I, when I got the phone call, jumped out of bed. I had dog tags on my mirror, threw them on. I had a camera. This is before phone cameras. On my thing, I put that in, put jeans on, put my scarpa boots on. I put stuff on thinking, I don't know what's going on, but I'm probably going to be ending up running away from something or running towards something or be up in the hills today. So I was kind of getting dressed for that. I'd just been on a trip to the border with the president for five days. So I was a bit unshaven and I had kind of like go bag type stuff in the back of my Prado. I drove around a civilian Prado. So I had all that stuff in there. And the whole time I'm on the phone to this guy who worked in the president's office, he spoke English. So he was screaming in in English when he called me. And at the same time, I'm calling the Australian army, telling them, wanting, hoping that they could uh, scramble and respond to the incident at his house. There was a moment there and his uh, family has told me, cousins who was in the, and uh, one of the guys in the Ford vehicle that was in the convoy said they were at the bridge on the outskirts of Dili and they were absolutely going to turn left to the Timor Dili hospital. But I was screaming, I was swearing black and blue. You have to go straight ahead, go. You have to get to the Australian army at the heliport. You have to get, and they're like, no, Mike, no, we're going to the Dili hospital. And said, no, and I'm swearing at like, there was like one of those butterfly effects moments where he just said, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead to this guy, this is Timberis Ambulance, which at the time was like a minivan with a dolly in it, no equipment, no medical equipment at all. And it was just fanging it. And it was about to turn left. If it had to turn left, he would have died. They didn't have the blood. They didn't have the capacity. They said they probably didn't have the same level of uh, medical support. As it turned out, they went straight ahead. The meantime, I'm screaming across town to an oblivious early morning cities and not much going on, cutting corners. And I get to this place, I roll up, kind of screech into the front gates. I was there yesterday actually showing some of the guys. It looks very different now. It's, all, it's a bit overgrown. And there was a Kiwi guy in the gate. I was told him, Major Michael Stone, I work at the Australian Embassy. The president has just been shot and he's on his way here now. Get ready. <laughs> and then I, yeah, I would have looked at peace, you know. I don't know what he thought, where he thought I worked or who I worked for or where I came from or whatever. And then I screamed in, opened up the doors and there were some 
some nurses there going through medication, like doing a stock take or something. And I said the same, the president's been shot. He's on his way here now. He'll be here in 30 seconds. Get ready. I said, show me exactly where I need to take the vehicle. And I got them to take me out to where the ER section was. Then they scrambled back in and we're learning. Funny. An Australian Army doctor is a captain. So you can tell this guy's a civilian, not a civilian. He's a specialist officer. He was walking across the car park area. And he's like, mate, can I help you? As if I, the sort of question you'd ask someone that's out of place, maybe, uh, you know, not on base, not supposed to be there. Or, and I said, yeah, mate. Then I told him, I was, said, the president's been shot. Probably need to be somewhere. Get, get ready. Anyway, because I was just there pausing for a microsecond, just doing all the calculations, a thousand things going through my head. And I looked at my vehicle and I'm like, oh, should I get in the car? Not, not going to be enough time. I sprinted, whatever it was, three, 400 meters out to the gate. And as I'm sprinting to the gate, I hear sirens coming. As the sirens got to the gate, I jumped in the front. I told them, yeah, we've got the gates to be lifted. Never, that was already lifted. We screamed straight through. When we pulled up, and I was instructing the driver because he was Timorese in, in Tedham, the language. When we pulled up, uh, I looked around over my shoulder. It was the first time to really to see what had happened. And like this thing hit me like a steam train. It was such a sinking feeling. All I could see in the back was red. It was crimson deep pools of red all through the floor of the, the back of the vehicle. Jose Ramos Horder was there lying. He looked like he'd bled out, but he was still breathing ever so uh, lightly, but just just holding on to life. He'd lost all colour in his skin. Jumped in the back and put my hands on his shoulder and I said, this also like happened really quickly, but it's going to be okay. But it seemed really really, really bad. The whole floor of the back of the car was blood. And uh, so I, me and three other guys that were in the car, there was a Portuguese uh, GNR, the tactical police had jumped in as they'd come through. We trolleyed through, we got into the ER room, we carried him onto the stretcher. I had my hands in his back, you know, where he'd been shot and he was screaming and he can't remember this because he was you had so little oxygen and then a whole day like not just a day but weeks of chaos ensued after that but uh, thankfully that day so many efforts so so many amazing efforts resulted in him surviving and there was touch and go for many many hours he eventually got um, medivacter in an australian hospital plane back to darwin and uh he was on deathbed and 70 30 chance of not making it to a 50-50 chance. He was in induced coma for 10, 11 days. Massive complications. One of the bullets had, he'd been shot at 10 metres range. One of the bullets had exploded through his back and through his through his organs and one part of the bullet had lodged into his spine. The other one had, as he was falling, had butterflied open his back. Very, very heavily, uh, heavy trauma. And then there was the next thing. Like what's next? Had exactly had located themselves around the other founder of the country, Janana Guzmao, around his house. And um, as he was leaving his residence on hearing that the President Ramos Horta had been shot and had his compound had been assaulted, he was leaving his compound to make his way into Dili and his convoy got ambushed. His car personally got shot five times. He was lucky to survive that himself. It wasn't long before I was getting calls from Kirsty, his wife, who was lying under the bed, at their house, hearing gunshots and hearing screaming outside between the rebels and the security guards that had stayed to protect her. So this is happening at the same time. 
And then on top of that, you imagine a country that had such significant trauma for 24 years with Indonesia in 1999, where the whole country had been destroyed, every person had been displaced, every person had been through massive terror and starvation. And now the two founders of the country, like the like Nelson Mandela is to Africa, these guys is to Timor. It sent a shockwave through the country and um, everybody was really scared, like deeply scared. What next? What was happening? Who was going to be targeted next? And essentially that day was a scramble just to secure. My focus was clearly on getting Jose Ramasorda to safety, to the best care, out of town, his family protected and I was coordinating my father and others in Darwin to help receive and help coordinate with the police and the media back there. And, and then um, I remember the next day, basically everybody, like the people, were, the whole staff of the president were just sitting, sitting there, absolutely shocked, like more than shocked, just uh, broken people, feeling like the country had to just stop. Like there's nothing next. There's no next president, but it had to go on. There had to be a head of state. So we got to the process of identifying or who was it? I didn't do this personally. You know, the, the process happened, but a guy came forward to be interim president. The interim president was supposed to be the Speaker of Parliament who was in Portugal at the time. So it was the Deputy Speaker of Parliament. And this guy would never, ever have imagined that he'd be standing in to be the President of the Republic. I went in and, and met him immediately in the morning to help him out and uh, asked him the question. I said, sir, okay, we've got to, first thing we've got to do is secure you and the family. Where are you staying? Where are you living? And he said, well, I'm a bit embarrassed to say this, but I'm still in a refugee camp. So his, oh his, my God. his, his family is in the internally displaced people's camp, you know, from the crisis two years earlier. And he's now the interim president. Wow. Yeah, man, like it was crazy. Two days later, the next guy turns up who was the Speaker of Parliament. So you can imagine the tactical response that's happening. Like these rebels are on the run. The top rebel, where I am right now, the Malvisi Posada, is where Ramos Horda, came for the very last meeting, which turned out to be the very last meeting, but what certainly he was hoping was the last meeting for the rebels to come down into Dili to be to hand in their weapons and to sit at a negotiating table and to come up with a compromise. It happened right here. Like I'm standing on the steps right now where he stood, took the photo with them just two weeks before they ended up shooting him. The guy that was the leader who painted himself like a Che Guevara type figure. And it's a very complex person, a very complex story as well, but he had a heightened level of paranoia. This experience coming up here two weeks earlier is one of those moments where I've only had a few of them where I genuinely felt really, really, really unsafe. It felt really dangerous. So we'd come up here. We'd stopped at the Prime Minister, Janana Guzmau's house on the way on the way up to this place, Mount Bissi. And uh, coming into the town here, into the big amphitheatre, there were his and the community here supported him, so he was safe. But he had guys that were better armed than the Timorese military, better equipment, and they had guys all the way leading up to this fort. And the guys all, all the way, there were rebels all the way around the outside of the fort, and then yeah, there was an inner cordon, and then he was in this grand building. And um, the guys had their fingers on the trigger. You could tell... They were more than paranoid. They were incredibly on edge and it just felt it felt dangerous. It felt really, really wrong. But it felt right that we were trying to do a peaceful resolution. We were taking that step and, you know, I'd been in similar situations in 2006, going in unarmed to situations or being in post-conflict situations skirmishes, trying to reason with people, deliberately 
unarmed, deliberately vulnerable, sitting down lower than them, smoking a lot of cigarettes at the time. But so I'm sitting down on the ground. You can kill me right now. I've got no protection here. Why would I do this unless I want to help you? And eventually somebody, you know, there'd be guys sweating with their veins pulsing through their neck and out of their forehead, like seething because one of their friends had just been killed and they wanted revenge. They wanted vengeance. They hated everything. They didn't trust the system. They didn't, but it was actually a really effective approach in getting reason, you know, like establishing trust and quite often worked. But in this case, it didn't. Uh, we got up here to uh, Malbissi and he pulled out of what he'd pre-agreed to do. And the instincts I had then were obviously right. Two weeks later, he went full irrational, full crazy and mounted some sort of attack on the two heads of state. Um, so what I didn't mention is Ronaldo, the guy that was the leader of the rebels, was actually dead before before one of his guys killed Ramos Horda. Him and his security guard had been shot dead. So he was already dead before Ramos Horda was shot and uh, before President, uh, Prime Minister at the time, Shinoda Guzman, was attacked up in the hills. But anyway, so just back to the, the general scenario, uh, two days later, the, the Speaker of Parliament gets back from Portugal and he uh, assumed the job. He wouldn't sit in the desk of the President because that was Ramos Horda's seat and his desk and he was going to come back and uh, But he said to me, and uh, I'd known him for a few years, what could have happened in for the space of 45 minutes would have taken us all the way back to Untayet, which was the name of the mission of the transitional, the UN mission that happened after the 99 crisis conflict. But basically, it would have taken Timor completely back to square one. But uh, nevertheless, needless to say, the response that happened after that um, by the Timorese military and police uh, reverting back to their methods that they used to win public support and to process uh, very difficult issues throughout their period, the 24-year period, where they had plenty of internal conflicts, resulted in all of the rebels peacefully coming down into custody and through a justice process. Ramos Horta came back to the office a day or two before the 90 days where, where if he was still overseas in medical condition that the constitution would kick in for so he came back before he should have he was still not well and then you know (laughs) things weren't quite the same the the country um definitely changed tack like everybody realized that everything that had been fought up to that point could have been lost so i i think it put a lot of things in perspective and uh yeah we we went back to business uh, working uh crazy hours and nation building and lots of activities and peace building initiatives and uh, trying to deal with the poverty and all the displaced people and all the different working with Ramos Horta. But, uh, and if something went wrong, I'd get the phone call, as you can imagine, right? Like we'd have an order of 06. I'd be getting calls in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. by Minister of Justice or somebody, the old city had my phone. But uh, after that, what had happened then, like I was getting the phone call, like, and from, Jose himself, like, oh, my heart's not feeling good tonight or something. And oh, wow. <laughs> so, man, I, I got to tell you, when I come home to Australia, I was really petrified of my phone, you know, like triggered uh, traumatic responses. Like I was kind of sick to death of being, for how I answer this phone call or respond to this phone call, there could be life or death, you know. I finished my job the start of 2012 in the last few years 2009 10 11 i kept it together 
a little bit, you know, I kept functional, kept doing things and working and uh, whatnot, but I was a friggin' mess. I had, um, I experienced emotions and uh, responses that I'd never possibly experienced or understood or and I don't even know what it is like I can't define it I certainly wasn't seeing any doctors other than to get medication that I shouldn't be getting that weren't military doctors by the way and I think I mentioned to you before like to stay functional I repeat going like it couldn't capture all this it couldn't lock everything away I couldn't I couldn't just keep putting shit into a dark vault so it really my body like I started to crack and I had uh, a few really bad emotional breakdowns and you know moments where I felt like I was in space I felt like I was just spiraling into an abyss of darkness and blackness and and my mind was just spinning around like deep psychosis and um, I had a long-term relationship at the time uh, that wasn't functional like my existence my work and everything wasn't good with a you know uh, I wasn't a good partner let's just say uh, but the breakups of that man like the depression I had and the anxiety and the the sadness and shit and but it was really all this other stuff that was coming forward and I was bottling it down with alcohol at night to sleep just to sleep like the nightmares were freaking horrific and didn't want to talk didn't want to process it I was taking a million coffees a day so I was like downers at night, coffees a day, and but a really un- unhealthy way to just keep moving forward. But it felt like the safest thing, like it was far more scarier to confront or to go home or to be honest or to cry in front of someone. That, and I definitely did. Like I broke down crying, like bawled my eyes out a bunch of times to only a few very close family and friends. So, but I felt like I was always holding it in. And um, anyway, so I come home to Australia in 2012. I got, I took like super long service leave, like at half pay and everything so that I didn't have to in the army. And I tried a couple of jobs, but so many things were triggering me, I suppose. And uh, I wasn't emotionally stable or I could still functionally do things, you know, that were okay. Like, but I couldn't sit through meetings, bureaucracy. And as I said, like my phone, I was really scared. And to this day, I still don't like answering phone calls. I prefer to receive messages. And, uh, but anyway, I was a really, really broken person, you know, really, really broken. And they say, like, there's, I eventually saw a psychiatrist and got um, antidepressants and antipsychotics and the different things to, to treat diagnosed PTSD, post-traumatic stress. When I started to see them, they said, well, you don't have PTSD. You've got traumatic stress. You've got TSD. You've got traumatic stress because I was still in it. It wasn't post Right. I, I did start to see a psychiatrist so, and I'm like, yeah, well, I don't want to get to the P part, you know, like <laughs> this still feels safe anyway. So I eventually had to come back, you know, like that environment spat me out. I couldn't, I was just broken. I, I was going to die, man. Like I, I was reckless, stupid, you know, like I can count the amount of times that I had near-death experiences that were my own fault. So anyway, the, pro- the process of the last uh, six years has been a full rebuild like uh, uh, just trying to get, trying to understand so many questions, like <laughs> trying to touch base with my body and my soul and and come to terms with uh, the different things that I've been to, but also to come to terms with my sense of purpose and my identity. It wasn't working. I thought, I thought staying on the run would be good, so I travelled a lot. I just hit the streets and hit the world and thought, well, surely travel something, identify with goodness and happiness, and so I'll keep doing that and it'll be good, but... 
I was finding myself in the four corners of the earth and, and uh, you know, depressed and not happy. I'm, I'm in places where it'd be like Toyota moments where I should be yelling, like, wow, yeah. And I rationally knew that, wow, these are the places I've been like that before, but I, I can't remember. I lost all sense of feeling. You know, I lost all sense of happiness or joy. I didn't even know what it was. I knew it was a word. And I knew that I'd see people being happy on TV, but I had no idea what that was. I couldn't identify with it. I was like, that's weird. Like, that's a different language. Or that, I just could not even, I had no aspirations. I didn't see myself living to 40. I'm 41 now, yeah. I couldn't even, like, think of the word 50, let alone living to 50. I didn't think I'd get through all that other stuff, you know. Like, so I, I had no aspiration. wasn't looking forward. My emotions were up and down because I was not, wasn't using the medication properly. So I was coming up and down from that as well. But it just really fucking scared me that I had nothing to live for, you know, like I had no happiness or there was no the joy of life. And so I suppose my rational brain kicked in like, okay, I need to change some things here. I need to, like, this is not good. It really, it was scary. And um, I started and uh, my fam, like, no, like I couldn't. They were really the ones that got me through. And uh, my dad helped me and led me towards support from uh, DVA. And uh, you know, I completely was convinced, like you could not convince me that I deserved help. Like the first one was that, that I needed help. Uh, the second one was that I deserved help, you know, that the government or the Veterans Affairs should help me for any reason. I thought that getting help was um, was a weakness. And I thought that getting help was should be for people that have uh, been blown up by an ID or shot or something like that. So I felt ashamed to do that. But he convinced me to do it. And so I did. I'm happy he did. Didn't even know the process was there or how it existed or whatever. And uh, that was the road to recovery, I suppose. I'm lucky that there's some good initiatives in Australia for veterans that, that are outside the medical pathway because the, the medical pathway, I'm not sure if it helped me. Like, I, I mean, I've come off medication after being on medication for years and, like, it's <laughs> – I can't say how transformational that is. It's just been insane. But the medication for me was not healthy. It did not work. And But there are quite a few organisations in Australia that provide support to get veterans moving, to get them activated, to get them into communities. I, I did this walk, uh, Kokoda Trail, a historic track, 100 kilometres through Kokoda. I was pretty isola isolated and didn't really integrate. I didn't feel like I integrated too much and I didn't feel accessible. I didn't want to be accessible to anybody, but it got me started on that process. And by doing Kokoda, I spoke to the guy that was running it uh, at the time and he was running these programs, like his company was running these programs, his ex-military himself. And, uh, you know, we had a chat about, or oh, maybe, in, you know, like you, you could do something in Timor. And, uh, and I said, yeah, man, like I've got some ideas for that. Anyway, I kept pegging forward and about a year and a half later, he came back to me and said, well, someone at the RSL, the service league, the like, main veterans organisation in Queensland, has mentioned if uh, it would be possible to do a, a veterans activity in Timor, like they were thinking a trek. And I'm like, yeah, 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 for sure, we could do something. And I put together a plan. Anyway, that uh, got me activated. So this is something I can do. Um, this is something that... I know and I'm you know I could produce something and so that felt right and um it ramped up really quickly which I'm pretty used to like from idea to getting something almost going and getting funding right, right at the last minute and making it happen so from from idea to the first iteration was only a matter of months 
it was ambitious, but we did the first veteran program anyway in Timor. It was great. It was very hard. It was hard work and whatnot. But um, the first number of these programs that we did, which is called Timor Awakening, for me, I was starting to get get to reestablish identity. I was starting to get purpose. I haven't gone through it, but you know, throughout all the many years that I served here in Timor, I experienced a lot of betrayal. Like what I felt like was a sense of betrayal. Like, people that I'd worked for, organizations, I felt a betrayal in humanity. Like how the, what the freaking hell are we doing through processing it all? I was seeing what had happened to allow this to happen and what people hadn't done to allow things to happen, not just the, you know, a crisis on the day or the next day, but larger things and politicians that have made decisions uninformed about deploying troops to places and, or, you know, doing things and, or not doing things. And anyway, I just, I had a lot of unease, both at the tactical level and I suppose the strategic level. And for me, the spiritual level, the existential level. So coming back to Timor was really hard, like really hard. And uh, then every street corner had a, had a memory, a story and which resonates with you until it doesn't you know, like, but that shit's got to be processed. And so that was pretty difficult in itself. Uh, but anyway, I got to a point where I'm like, all right, I've got to change up. I've got to try anything. And so I uh, was doing this program of holistic health and my dad had been doing holistic health in the veteran community in Australia. And uh, we had experts coming in and talking about nutrition and uh, doctors and psychiatrists talking about different uh, aspects of depression and anxiety and mindset, growth mindset of a fixed mindset, talking about techniques to ground yourself, about mindfulness and meditation, physical things to get active and, uh, you know, the different modalities of exercise and uh, education, self-help. And anyway, so by doing this over and over again, and I suppose just trying to reach out for life rafts, I suppose bricks of my foundation started to be set again and like I could feel gravity of life grounding me to the ground again slowly and then even I'll just say like right now what's it we're in May 2019 six months ago I went down to the Invictus Games which is a like an Olympic Games for wounded veterans went down to spectate and to be involved just from the outside and my ship was fairly together I thought like I was on the right trajectory but I had um, a bit of an episode where I just felt like crying all the time. Like I just, I don't know, like seeing the Syrian and Af- Afghani uh, veterans uh, come into the stadium and and just empathising, I suppose, with how dramatic the shift must be from the crazy world that they've lived in and the crazy circumstances of their lives to being in the stadium full of people in this incredibly modern city of, you know, like it just, it just overwhelmed me for some reason. And... Um, it was kind of the last straw. I don't know, man. I was just scared, you know. I, I suppose I was starting to feel mortality and I thought, no, like, no, I'm really serious. I have to change up. And so I stopped drinking, stopped smoking. I stopped gambling. And then I thought, well, I'm doing this. You know, I want to reestablish self-esteem and feel good about myself. I want to lose weight. So I got into the nutrition I started, I realized, shit, I need to, uh, one thing I'm doing, I'm doing all these vet- veterans guys on these programs, but then I'm coming back to complete isolation and feeling lonely again and desperate and, and worthless and whatever. So I need to re-engage in communities. I'd like to start learning to walk again, essentially. And uh, I just changed up a whole bunch of shit that I probably, you know, I knew deep down, like there's a whole bunch of things that I needed to change earlier. 
but I hadn't for whatever reason. And it wasn't easy, but it kind of was. Like it was a lot easier than I thought and there are a lot of answers in Simple Solutions. So, you know, getting active again and just getting into communities. Anyway, six months ago, I thought I kept driving past this uh, wakeboarding place, which is near my parents' house. And I thought, oh man, you know, I should just do something new. Like I used to do new things all the time. I should try something new. I couldn't go in, man. I didn't even want to go in and ask what the price was and how long. And I didn't even want to walk into the entranceway. Like I felt like I didn't belong in society. And I'd actually been feeling that for years. I felt, I felt work, like, which is freaking bizarre, you know, someone that served their country for so long. I felt embarrassed to be drinking coffee at a coffee shop or, you know, like a, have a conversation at a pub with strangers and that type of thing. Like I've just been snowboarding, man, for a month, you know, like so I've come a long way and all these different in things. In Colorado. In Colorado, yeah, man. <laughs> I went and visited your hometown, Boulder, yeah. Colorado. You know, could just, it was the omens, you know, it's like the alchemist. All these omens started popping up because they were always there. I mean, just like the alchemist. Like the answers were always within me and the solutions were always within me and I didn't need the medication. You know, I needed, I needed, and there's something that resonated with me. It took ages to process and make sense of this, but my cousin said to me, you know, they really appreciate what you're doing and everything. He said, but you've got to love yourself, mate. Right. You know, you don't love yourself. You've got to get there, mate. You deserve it. I didn't know what that meant, you know. Like, I think I do now, you know, like I think I do. That's like a starting point. Yeah, and I, this is, I've done a few team awakenings now where I get to share this experience and go through reflections with other veterans. And this is so healing, man. Like there's nothing more healing than helping other people heal and, you know, bouncing ideas and getting like I'm right here now with two Vietnam vets here in Timor who are still healing, man. They're in the mid-70s, you know. But anyway, so uh, I realized, yeah, okay, I do have to love myself. And to love myself, I've got to respect myself. To respect myself, I got to stop abusing myself. Like I was doing it to myself. I was drinking the alcohol. I was doing stupid things. I was, you know, having bad habits. I wasn't respecting my body. I wasn't respecting my my dignity by putting myself in situations that wasn't dig. I wasn't feeling the honor that I needed to feel, like good values, and so that's been part of the process as well. So yeah, like uh, it's been pretty radical but this it's been great journey and i i feel like i don't know the answers i don't know but i know that the journey is life like the journey is right now and being in the present and tasting the food and enjoying the joy in people's eyes enjoying what you're doing and who you were what you might have done not in the future what might be or you know your imagination but living today and that's something that i've really focused on in the last years to be present and that is making sense with me. And now I'm involved with a bunch of projects in Timor, which has been great for me selfishly, like really, really important in my journey of healing. has been great in the journey of hundreds of Australians that have come here. And it's been and continues to be important to large communities of Timorese veterans and Timorese people who I feel really appreciate that we respect them. We love them. We respect their history. We honor their history. And I've kind of known this all along. People that go to developing countries and like volunteer here or there or do a project and whatnot, like, yeah, I'm going to help. I'm doing this or that. No, that person's going to grow. The person goes away. There's nuances in developing communities or undeveloped countries. 
lives that haven't been tainted by material motivation that, that aren't massively shaped by media and by all these uh, conditions or pressures and norms and, and whatnot. There's real majesty and beauty and sense in the dignity that people in these communities show each other in the way they naturally community. They have a true sense of mutual support. They don't have, in their languages, they don't have words for thank you or please. If you do something, it's because you do something. You could look at it one way and say, well, that's an insurance policy because, you know, as part of a tribe, I'm going to need somebody to do something for me. But I'm going to look at it from a nicer point of view in that there's a genuine sense of community. And it's, it is, you'd have to say, it's like a DNA thing for, for human survival, but also the processes of griefing and just the collective living. There's like an, an incredible energy. Anyway, so what I was getting to is that when we come here as veterans, the teamies look at us in admiration, like, wow, these guys are super professional, super modern army. They've done all this stuff and they're coming here and doing their program here and they're coming and connected with us. But actually we come here and we're like, wow, look at these Timorese veterans, the guerrilla fighters that fought for 24 years. Most of them have been tortured. A lot of them have been through unthinkable stages of political prison, you know, being political prisoners. Almost all of them have had intimate family members, direct family members, murdered, tortured, disappeared through conflict. Yet they have managed to go through a process in this short space of time of reconciliation with their enemies of forgiveness and they still walk every day with an incredible amount of dignity and honor and purpose and a sense of duty and service to their families and to their communities they go massively out of their way to respect us for the service we've done which i tell you is a lot smaller than what we've learned on a on a much deeper level that has been more healing. And we've had so many testimonies where veterans have said, and they've written down, I have been hospitalized half a dozen times. I've been on dozens of medications. I've had so many interactions. I've been suicidal. I was suicidal. And this program, this experience has been more beneficial to me than all of that put together. Yeah. And this is from, you know, this Timorese people who fought a, fought a war where the world didn't listen, where they had the world against them. They had a country of 200 million people invade their tiny little island, violate their people completely. The whole country was displaced for for four years. Upwards of 300,000 people, a third of their population were killed in the first three or four years. Official reports went through, like Australian officials at the time sent reports to our government, to the media. They were swept under the carpet. They weren't given the dignity of even the modicum of honesty about what was happening to them. For 24 years, they did this. Nobody came to support them at all. And there were individuals that came to support small organizations. They did this completely isolated from the world. Then we come along in 1999, you know, after all this other process. In many ways, like there were things that work geopolitically that forced this intervention to happen in 1999 because of what was happening and it couldn't be hidden anymore, all the dirty secrets for, for decades. Anyway, these people don't think, oh, well, what were they doing for all the decades? They live in these amazing conditions. They had all the capacity. Why didn't they come and help? They don't think about that. They're like, oh, thank goodness you came. Like, are you kidding me? 24 years. Right. And they said, yeah, our war was like we had other nicknames for our conflict. It was waiting for the foreigners, waiting for the Malai. 
You know, there's the guys, they're fighting a gorilla war for 24 years. Can you imagine doing it for a year, yeah. six months, yeah. you know, and this is their approach. Anyway, so when we see that, we say, well, uh, firstly, if they've got the resilience, and I can't even start to talk about the bravery and courage and uh, discipline that they, these guys had to, throughout that time, but they show us that healing is possible, that forgiveness is possible, that reconciliation is not just possible, but it's massively like it's a really successful way of approaching an issue about living what matters is today and tomorrow. What matters is the next step. And they say that in the local language, it's, it's beautiful how they explain it. It's, you know, what good is it lamenting about the past or having negative energy about the past? It's all we can do is help shape the future. And that's all we've ever been able to do. Right. And our mission is to provide safety and security and peace for our children and their children and freedom, all these, you know, basic things. Anyway, so uh, it's just so powerful, man, you know, like, and so this is what we've been doing for the last four years. And I learn every day of the journey from this about, and I think that's life is that the journey, you know, being present in that journey. And I suppose appreciating all these little lessons we get and all the, the amazing aspects of humanity rather than the the negative aspects, the hopeful aspects and the the positive things, the opportunities rather than the risks or the negativity. And I suppose spatially, like I've had to try and come to that point, but also uh, like uh, to understand society, but also as a person. And I keep reminding myself of that, the journey. And I don't know what post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety, the, all these different terms, they're, they're fluid conditions. I mean, they're, the post-traumatic stress are you know, certainly a chemical response. There's, your brain does, and if you think of like the time when women were in caves and if you almost got attacked by a lion, like you became super more alert, you know, something happened in your brain and to teach you, okay, if I'm ever in this condition again, like right. be more aware of a lion or be more aware of the smell or of the sound of a lion approaching or a lot of animals have it. Is this the post-traumatic stress is that your body conditioning yourself to be more alert, to stay safer, to live longer. I suppose when you've been you know, in a lot of um, environments where your brain has been triggered to be alert and be and to be active, uh, it can really activate like why you up and it's insane, man. You know, which it's back insane. to a normal. Wow, what a storyline, man! I mean, if if people were reading this, not hearing this, that it almost be too insane to to believe. I I kind of feel like you just narrated a, a book. All uh, oh, right, yeah. I was a bit a bit scattered, man. Like a few, there's a lot of storylines, <laughs> but yeah, I hope it makes some sense. No, yeah. it's, it's an amazing story, and I, and I think the it's an incredible story arc of of you know opportunity and hope and professional accomplishment, and then some serious, seriously bad times, and then the way you're making sense of it all and coming good is is by contributing back into the very society that's kind of made all of this happen and, and helping helping veterans, um, you know, by putting them straight back in, and it's. It's just incredible, man. And I, yeah, for me personally, and and I guess for anyone who's out there listening, I mean, thank you for your thank you for your vulnerability and the and, and your authenticity. It's it's incredible. Oh, you're welcome, mate. I'm very vulnerable. I'm very very happy to admit, incredibly vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. So there's times where I just wish I had of, um, but it doesn't matter. You know, like that was the pro. That was my journey, and it's got me to where I am now. 
I'm just so so happy to be in the present now and to uh, and to be back in in Timor after a real roller coaster of, of the, the journey of the birth of this country and all of the things that have happened here to be contributing to something that's that's good that feels good you know that's uh, that really is building and uplifting and and uh, it's got forward forward momentum and um, I don't know where I'm going to be in five years or ten years and I'm totally okay with that but I'm really happy that that I'm part of this community of Australia as a country. Uh, that took me a while, but then uh, our friendship and our, our neighbours here in Timor and the community we've got with the between Australian veterans and Timor veterans. And I think the the one thing uh, you know we all need to try and do is to help others and identify that we are all vulnerable. Everybody has vulnerability. Everybody has times when they feel not great not perfect you know worthless you know let's say or depressed or things aren't going right but there is always hope yeah and there are answers and we can all be we can get healthier and we can contribute to other people's and that will come back and be better it's yeah. better for you like it's better for us better for your soul we're tribal people we're, we've got tribal instincts to the whole idea of mutual support which is embedded in cultures like in Timor is something that we should have a look at at how we're doing and applying that in our in our societies you know contemporary societies let's say western societies yeah absolutely because we're so isolated you know moving away from all of these pressures which are not doing us any favors that are saying reach out and do this or buy that or once you get somewhere and it's never really identified what that is but it's a, there's there's this constant illusion that there's a destination or a green pasture or whatever it is, right. but it's not there and it's not about that. It's about the journey and being a good person and being a good person in the present. If you're a good person and good to other people, you know, if you're not, you can't expect it to happen to you. Let's put it that way. If you are a good person, you're going to be treated well by other people and it, it eventually will make your life better. <laughs> That's my experience. That's <laughs> so, awesome, man. That's yeah. awesome. Well, yeah. man, I mean, what a what a journey and, and that, you know, what a message and whatever happens over the next five or 10 or 20 or 50 years, it's, uh, you know, you've built this this foundation that you've been through, you've been put through the fire, that's for sure, man, and you've come back out the other side. You know, I love the work you're doing in East Timor and I know you're, you're helping an enormous amount of veterans and and that program Thanks, should be able to spread, right? You know, I can, I can so, oh, for sure, so imagine yeah. other groups kind of replicating the awesome work you're doing there because it's cheaper for the government, it's better for yeah. people's health, it's better yeah. for you know cross cultural stuff, and and there's this other is, people like you out there that you know yeah. have, have have had similar kind of um, experiences that could probably put that put those experiences to to good use. Yeah, to, to yeah, and like if you look at a business example of Uber. You know, or there's a, you know, the lime scooters and things. It's about community supporting or business, you know, the self's a mutual support, peer to peer type of therapy or recovery from addiction or recovery from uh, you know, mental conditions. And um, uh, it, it absolutely, it's been in the back of our minds to to help contribute to the strategic space of, of veterans getting help that are outside the traditional pathways of medicating. The pathway right now for a veteran, but most veterans, I'd say in the US and Canada, in Australia, probably in many Western countries, is you go to a psychiatrist 
or go to a doctor. If you're going to get government supporters, generally to psychologists, the psychologist's job is to give you a medication. You walk in there, doesn't matter what condition you've got, they've got a treatment and it's, it's via medication. You come back six weeks later and the, generally like the interaction is pretty minimal, 10, 15 minutes. You come back six weeks later or three months later and, oh, it's not working. Oh, let's try another one. Right. Or we'll give you another one. Oh, I've got another condition, which may be because of the first medication. Oh, I can't sleep. Or oh, my dreams are doing this. So I can't. Oh, okay, we'll try this as well. There's so many guys that are on eight medications, 10 medications, and they're just chasing, like it's just getting worse and compounding. And I've been through that process and, and that's my journey. And it's not just my journey. It's many, many, many veterans. It just keeps coming up over and over again. There is a purpose and there's a time frame for medications. And, but the answers are pretty like simple. They're not easy to get to, to process, but, but exercise, community, get building uh, good, stable people around you, identifying goals, but identifying behaviors that are not reinforcing any positivity in your life and trying to get away from those like addictions. And the program that we've done, which has been hugely successful for us, for the Timorese veterans, which have had such a different experience for our countries, our people coming together. And the story between Australia and Timor, like that's a really long story. And there's a lot of darkness in that of foreign policy and greed and resource grabbing and complicity in different things this like builds a bridge that's stronger than that that you know between our people and and the Timor awakening program absolutely we built with the mind of having it open source and sharing with any other organization any other country that may get benefit from it so everything we've done we want to share experiences and on the next program we've got a number of uh, New Zealand veterans coming with us and we're hoping we can help them start a new program or just have a constant presence of New Zealanders with us. I had a, we've had a, a Swedish and a Finnish veteran come on previous programs and we'd absolutely love to share our experiences um, of health and good news with other veterans to show that there are pathways, you know, where you can sort what seems to be unsortable out and make a little bit of sense. And you can certainly have a future identity. You can have a sense of purpose. You can have a sense of service and duty like you felt when you were serving or like you wanted to have that motivated you to serve in the first place. We don't stop at 40 when we you know, reach our business top or dominate some industry or some specialization or at retirement at 50. Life doesn't start at 50 either. Like if you think like that, then you're, for me, it's you're already dying. You're not living. And uh, certainly for veterans that have, uh, that are getting uh, support through de- various pensions. And there's a classification in Australia called totally permanent incapacitated. That's the term that veterans get when it's deemed that they're not suitable to be working in the workforce anymore. And yeah. it's really great that our government, like we're very, very fortunate in Australia, that our system is well established to support veterans. But that's not a label that veterans want to have, you know, like that's soul destroying. If you're 40, you've got another 60 years. And I'll tell you, guarantee you, the odds yeah. are, like odds are absolutely in your favour. You're going to have another 40. And they can be good years. Like they can be purposeful years and be new identities and new careers and new relationships and new experiences and happiness and joy. and ex- Anyway, like that's how I feel and I suppose that's come out of this, which I, yeah, it's, it feels good to be to be alive again, mate. That's awesome, buddy. It's really yeah. awesome. So Mick, how do people, you know, connect with you and Timor Awakening if they want to come up for a trip or support somehow or learn more? 
We've got a website. It's a modest one. I've just wicked with them. On that are a number of testimonies and stories. There's some example programs. There's a the participant information pack on there. There's a number of videos. We've made a lot of short videos about our experiences here, and there's some great stories, great personal journeys of veterans that have come here and what they've learned and how they've learned and some good inspiration there. So that's one way just to have a look and peruse and maybe catch some ideas on there is a, an expression of interest for veterans that would like to take part. And there's also email addresses on there if there's a way that we could share. We really want to share. We want to share the good news. It's our duty, our service, our obligation and our joy to contribute to help other people. Like it's such such a, not just a lonely place, but it's such a really devastating place to be in the darkness and deep in the hole or whatever the metaphor is you know i felt like i was in space and i couldn't see any planets and there's no no grounding or gravity and we're all committed and the veteran community out there are committed to help you if that's how you're feeling and it's definitely possible to get out yeah it's definitely possible to feel good again and feel happy again and uh yeah so uh reach out i mean there are lots of avenues in the community there's lots of avenues lots of ex-service organizations in australia as well that are out there taking that first step is important but uh it's, it's really the critical the hardest part but once you do reach out um, you know things things can start to get better awesome mick awesome hey man thanks for coming on um so happy you're you're making progress up in yes, so and, also and doing, doing great work i love it i love you thanks mate love you too Well, that's a wrap for today, everyone. I sincerely appreciate your time. I'd love to hear your feedback and get your reviews. If there's anyone who you think I should be interviewing, send me their details and I'll reach out. And please share this with anyone in your life who you think might connect with what we're all about here at The Antitoxin. Have fun out there today and try not to take life too seriously.